We have been uh, walking through a series in the mornings here about being a church in the city, and it's been walking us through 1 Corinthians, and today, this morning, is a bit of a pause in, in that, in that we're not going to look at 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, we're going to take a jump to a different letter in the New Testament, one called Hebrews. Nobody knows exactly to whom it was written or by whom it was written, uh, but there are immense treasures in it. And it's very applicable for the, the series that is trying to help us be Christians, be a church, be a community of people who follow Jesus in a city. Because when we do that, when we live for Christ outwardly and keep on living for Christ, we inevitably will face certain tensions, pressures, people who want us to just shut up. And that maybe gets compounded when we think about some of God's promises and we look around us and we, we don't actually see those taking shape. The, the tendency is to, to begin stepping back, shrinking back a little bit. Maybe even some people just walk away. They, they get fed up with it. They don't like the pressures that either external or within, and they begin backing off from living for Jesus. How can, we, how can we equip ourselves as believers to push on, to persevere? Well, that's largely what the, the book or the letter of Hebrews is all about, persevering, pushing forward in the faith. In fact, the whole of Hebrews could be summarized as, see how great Jesus is. Therefore, persevere. So we're going to walk through a passage together. Uh, and I'm going to have the whole passage up on the screen in, in chunks. It's a lengthy passage. And we're mainly going to read parts of it. I want the text to speak. God's word to speak. And, and I'll try to comment on a few things and draw our attention to a few things uh, as we go. Hebrews starts in a certain passage in chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. It begins with a challenge, begins this section with a challenge to those early Christians. And I think it's a very helpful challenge for us as we think about being Christians in a church in the city. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. The day that he's speaking of is when the risen Lord Jesus himself comes back in all of his glory and splendor and judges everyone and resurrects his people into glorified bodies, making us perfect and transforming this entire creation. That day is what he's speaking about. So let us hold unswervingly to our hope and contemplate, consider how to spur each other on in light of this. So there's our challenge, the challenge that the author puts to, to the Christians. He follows that with a warning. And I'm not going to comment at all on this. I'm simply going to read it. It is one of the hardest challenges or warnings that Christians can receive. So after that challenge, now here's the warning. 
For if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Rather, there is only fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume God's enemies. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a person deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, treated, treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that set him or her apart, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Then the author gives a, a reminder. But remember those early days. After you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Remember that. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those treated similarly. You sympathized with those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. See, those Christians were facing something a lot more challenging than we are today. In the early days, they're, they're not experiencing this anymore when he's writing this letter, but in the early days, they were. I mean, the government actually walking in and just taking some of their, their things because they're Christians. Humiliating them publicly. And, and they stood firm at that time. It says, remember that, what you did. Well, now... That has somewhat ceased in, for these, uh, these, these hearers of this letter, though it is clear that they still experience some social shame for being Christians. That comes out at different points in the letter. They're still being, in a sense, persecuted, but more it's social ostracization, shame, making them embarrassed that they stand up for Jesus in the public. And some of them are beginning to back away. He says that they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property and all these other things because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And that's how you could stand up. We're going to explore that a bit more as we move on. So he's given them a challenge. He, he then warned them very severely about backing away from that challenge. Uh, but then he reminded them that they have pushed forward before in tougher times, and now he reminds them of the challenge, and he sharpens it a bit. So let's listen to this as we're challenged equally, thinking about how to live in this city for Christ. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised that's a theme that will come up again. He's promised. For in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back or if she shrinks back, 
I will not be pleased with him or her. But we are not of those who shrink back, leading to destruction, but rather of those who believe, who have faith, leading to the preservation of life. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? To persevere, to press on, to not shrink back. To walk by faith. That's what he's about to lead us into, to contemplate what it means to to walk, live by faith, not shrink back. What does that mean? We talk about it all the time, don't we? Let me summarize really quickly before we launch into what he says about living by faith. The challenge is hold unswervingly to our hope. For he who promised is faithful. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Do not shrink back. Live by faith. Okay, but how? What does that even mean and how do you do it? Well, that's what the author spends all of chapter 11 elaborating on. And the climax of it all comes in the beginning of chapter 12. He, he doesn't leave us alone to try to figure out what it means to live by faith. In fact, his very next statement is this. Now, faith is, oh, thank you. He even defines it for us. It doesn't leave us alone to waffle about. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So let's take those two phrases out. Sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. That's what faith is, he says. First, what is faith not? A lot of people misunderstand this very verse. A lot of non-Christians misunderstand it, and a lot of Christians. They say, oh, faith, those Christians, they live by faith. They believe things despite the evidence. We have all sorts of evidence. We see things, we hear things, we touch things. Uh, But those Christians, they deny all evidence. They don't live by sight. No, no, they live by faith. It's sort of like believing that they're, you know, where does rain come from? Well, there are these little blue people up there above the clouds, and they're close to the sun, so they start sweating, and that's where we get rain, these blue, sweaty men. I believe it. Oh, no, I haven't seen it. No, and in fact, a lot of people, yes, have evidence that that's not true, but I believe it anyway. I live by faith, not by sight. It's silly, but that's what a lot of non-Christians think Christians are all about is living, believing something despite the evidence. That's not what the author means. That's not what Christian faith is. In fact, Christian faith at its core has to have evidence holding it up. It's so fundamental to our Christian faith that we trust Jesus because it was proven that he not only died, but he rose again. And that has evidence. In fact, that's very important for the first Christians. Listen quickly to to what John writes, one of those first believers. He starts his letter, 1 John, by saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at with our hands, we've touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life, Jesus The life appeared. We've seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you that that eternal life is here, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and us with him. It's so important for the early Christians that they saw Jesus risen from the dead, that they touched him with their own hands, that they heard him speak. They even tasted him in a sense. They kissed him. They smelled him. In fact, our Christian faith is built on evidence in that sense. So it's just not right uh, for what a lot of non-Christians assume we Christians think. We actually do live, in a sense, by sight. By the sight of those who actually saw, witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. We live according to what they saw. It's firm. It's solid. That's not what this author's talking about, though. Our Christian faith is built on that. He talks about faith in God's promise in particular. When you look around you and you don't see God's promises happening, you live by trusting the God who promises. And that's specifically what he's talking about. God has made promises and we trust him even when we don't see those taking shape. This is what Christian faith is in this context. God has promised. It's toward that that we hope, even when not seeing it. And we're going to see this unfold throughout Hebrews 11. It's all about trusting God's promise, even when we don't see it unfolding around us. It's a bit like this. God has promised... I will make you perfect. I will make you full. I will bring you to this point where everything is in harmony and you are raised from the dead, glorified, made perfect. I will. I'll bring you to that point. Renewing all creation, in fact. All these promises. It's it's sort of like picturing a field with all of these flowers that have grown to fruition. They are perfect. That's what he's promised. But when you look around, that's what you see. It doesn't look like what he's promised is happening. That's what we see around us. Trusting that his promise will happen. Despite looking around and not seeing it take shape like this. Now it's going to get more complicated a little bit later. But this is fundamental to what Hebrews is talking about. God promising and us not seeing it really happen. Can you trust him and push on anyway? So then in chapter 11, the author begins walking us through the Old Testament, highlighting different people from the very beginning throughout the whole Old Testament, people who lived in this way, people who heard God promise something and trusted him and acted despite what they saw. Now, the author is using an ancient form of writing uh, called an encomium. You can write that down. It's an exciting word and go look it up. It's so much fun. Encomium. All it means is a praise to somebody. And it was a very common form of writing in the ancient times. Uh, Greeks, Jewish people, everybody was using this. Where they'd start listing people who had lived according to certain virtues. A a certain virtue. But the reason they're highlighting these people who live by this virtue is because they're driving toward a certain climax. One person who's done it better than anybody else. And the author uses that technique here. So he he highlights people from the Old Testament living by a certain virtue, faith, 
trusting God who promises, despite not seeing it happen. But he's driving toward a certain climax, so we need to drive toward that climax too. So we're going to walk through this passage pretty much just reading it, just so you get the flow of the text itself. And we'll pause at just a few points. It says, this faith, this is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that it was not out of what was visibly the case that what we now see has come about. In other words, if you had been there before creation, uh, looking around, there would have been nothing to prove to you that all this was going to come about. It wasn't what it looked like. That's not what guaranteed. It was God's command. From the very beginning, this was always the case. God's command made things happen, not what you see around you. Now he moves into certain characters. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did, through which he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by it he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, remember, a resilient trust in the God who promises despite not seeing them fulfilled yet. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family, through which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness that's according to faith. See, he trusted God's word, even though he didn't see it happening yet, he trusted it and acted, and he became the inheritor of something great. By faith, that is, by a resilient trust in the God who promises, despite not seeing them fulfilled yet, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him, of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, the same resilient trust in the God of promises, even barren Sarah herself received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. At this point, the author pauses. He's gone through some characters in the Old Testament. He's going to resume, but he pauses and makes us reflect a moment on what he's just said. All these people, he writes, all those people were still living by faith resilient trust, when they died, not having received the things promised. 
but only seeing them and welcoming them from a distance. This is key, and he'll bring it up again. All these Old Testament people died without actually seeing the promises that God had made. They didn't make it to the end, so to speak. They lived faithfully, but they didn't see the end. They died before they were given the promises. He's going to bring that same thing back up later. It's a very important point. And they admitted that they were aliens, strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He didn't give it to them yet, but he prepared one for them. So the author made us pause to reflect. And now he resumes. By faith, this resilient trust in the God who promises, despite not seeing them happen yet, Abraham, when when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on his top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. By the way, that didn't happen for another 400 years, though it did happen. Joseph spoke about it and gave instructions about his bones. You see how that's living by this type of faith? Joseph knew God had promised that the people, his people would be brought to the promised land. And Joseph made practical arrangements so that his bones would be carried when God fulfilled that. He didn't see it happen. He died, generations died, 400 years passed until God kept his promise. That's living by faith, as Hebrews says. Pushing on, even when you're not seeing God's promises take shape around you. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. Did you catch that? That's something that the Hebrew audience, the Hebrews who this letter is written to, we're going through, being mistreated. It's a clever way to bring them right into Moses' experience. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith... Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, therefore neither should we. He persevered, 
because he saw him who was invisible, perhaps at the burning bush. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for just seven days. So again, they had to march, trusting that God's promise would be kept, even though they didn't see it happen for seven whole days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She had heard God's word that he was giving her land, that land, to the Israelites, and she trusted the promise of God. And she's commended here for it. And then he concludes by basically saying he doesn't have time to talk about everything else that he would love to. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith, through this resilient trust in the God who promises, despite not seeing them fulfilled yet, they conquered kingdoms. They administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, like Daniel, quenched the power of the flames, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword. They were empowered from weakness. They were made mighty in battle. They routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again, like when Elisha, or Elisha raised the Shunammites' uh, child. Others, though, were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute. They were persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. And yet again now, the author, he's worked his way through the Old Testament, highlighting people living by faith, trust in God. He makes us pause and reflect again and listen to the theme he brings up. And all these people, though receiving a good testimony about their faith, they're testified to that they had great faith. They did not walk away with what had been promised. It's a curious thing to, to remind us of again, isn't it? He's highlighting all these people living by faith, but yet again, he says, they didn't walk away with it. They didn't see the end. The promise is actually coming about. Because God had planned something better for us, so that it would not be without us that they would be made perfect. God deliberately did not make them perfect, bring them to the climax of his promises. He deliberately did not, so that it wouldn't be without us that they would be made perfect. Do you remember what made perfect means? I've alluded to it a few times. Here's one way to put it. Brought to the final proper goal of something, to be made perfect. Which in this case is the glorious resurrection 
and eternally perfect dwelling with God and with others. That's being made perfect. They didn't see it. God intended that. So it wouldn't be without us that they would be brought to this perfection. However, if you had been reading this letter from the beginning, which we have not, you would be reminded of something right now by that phrase, made perfect, because it's been coming up again and again in the letter. Listen to what has been made perfect, or I should say, who has been made perfect. In Hebrews 2, Jesus, the leader of our salvation, has been made perfect. Hebrews 5, Jesus, after being made perfect, he became the cause of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 7, the Son has been made perfect forever. You could say, Jesus has arrived at the end. All those people live by faith, none of them actually have arrived yet. Jesus, however, has arrived at the ultimate goal of everything, perfection. Now, we haven't actually gotten to the climax of of this passage in Hebrews. We're about to. But let me remind you of the picture. See, when, when you look around you and you don't see God's promises actually taking shape, but you know that he promised this huge harvest of perfection at the end, his resurrection and, and fellowship, but you look around and, and it's not happening. This is not actually an accurate picture. This is better. Actually, it would be better if it was only one flower. Use your imagination and cut out all those extra ones. One flower has arrived at perfection. This is actually what we should see when we look around us. God's promises have not reached perfection except in one person. And they have in him. And that's rock solid. And now here's the climax of this whole passage in in Hebrews. And this will guide our thoughts and focus us for the remainder of our worship, is this climax. Based on all of this, the author says, even we, right, he brings us right into it. All those other people live by faith, even we. Based on all this, since we have surrounding us such a great cloud of testifiers, all those people he's just talked about who testify to God, We're surrounded by them. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of testifiers, and after we throw off every hindrance and all of the sin that easily entangles us, after you throw that off, get rid of it, let's run with perseverance. Here's the challenge that he brought up at the beginning. Let us run with perseverance the contest that's laid out before us by looking with unswerving eyes and attention to the leader and the perfecter of the faith, Jesus. He, see, this is the climax. Yes, pay attention to all those people that have been mentioned, but they didn't arrive. This guy, fix your eyes on him. He For the sake of the joy laid before him, he endured the cross after despising its shame. 
And then he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. He has made it. Consider the one who has endured such opposition from humans against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured all this so that you won't grow weary as you attempt to be Christians in a church in this city. So this picture again, it's because Jesus has arrived and we fix our eyes on him, knowing that he is the perfecter of the faith, the one who will bring all of us to this point of perfection and glory. If we fix our eyes on him, our faith, our trust can be rock solid as we push on in life despite the pressures. So this is the the summary as we think about actually living for this Jesus as a community in the, the city here. Here's the challenge. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. And let's spur each other on to love and good deeds. Regardless of what else you see when you look around, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who has already reached the goal and the one who will bring us to the goal. And he who promised is faithful.